Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 80 as we enter into a time of worship. We start, as always, by hearing from our God and turning our attention to our God. We who are the sheep of His pasture look to the hand of our shepherd. I think you'll see that Psalm 80 providentially fits quite well with the the opening words we just read. Psalm 80, to the choir master according to Lily's a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So you see there three times there is a refrain in this psalm. Restore us, O Lord, God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And at the beginning, God is referred to as the shepherd of Israel. And that's not new language to us. We know probably the most famous psalm, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. God is the chief and supreme shepherd of His people who looks over us as a flock of sheep that He he loves tenderly, He cares for. Uh, Like a perfect shepherd, He makes sure that we get our food, He makes sure that we are safe, that we have every provision that we need. And of course, we know in the New Testament, Jesus comes along and He says, I am the good shepherd. We don't have to wonder who that shepherd is. We have the perfect picture of Him the full revelation of Him in the person and work of Christ Jesus. 
And so with that, we, we turn our attention to this shepherd, our Lord and our Savior, and we worship him. He's worthy of our worship and our praise. He's given us everything we've needed all week. He's taken care of all of our needs, physical and spiritual. Uh, even with, I would say, most of us have had all that we have needed and most of what we have wanted. God has given that to us, and we have to be good stewards of it. So let's worship Him in prayer, and then we'll stand and sing together. Father, we thank You for the opportunity that we have to gather in Your presence as a congregation. We come, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, Your Son, asking in His name that You would be merciful to us, that You would look upon us with pity, that You would see again all of the needs that we have, and that You would meet our needs according to Your riches and Your kindness and Your steadfast love in Christ Jesus. We pray that You would give us the help of the Holy Spirit this time as we worship that you would work in each of us to stir up our hearts and our minds to worship, that you would give us grace, that you would feed our souls, and that we would leave here conformed even more to the image of your Son. We recognize that as we look and behold him, we are transformed from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to another degree, and very often we cannot sense those steps, those little increments of glory, but we know that you're working. So help us to believe and to worship in faith, knowing that you will uh, hear us, that you'll answer our prayers, and that you will make sure that we have all that we need. We thank you that you would take us to be the sheep of your pasture, that you would give, up, give yourself to be our shepherd now and forever. We thank you that we have a Jesus, a good shepherd, one who would take upon himself our flesh and be clothed in the likeness of even sinful flesh and walk amongst men so that we could be saved. We're thankful that a death has occurred that has made atonement for our sins in the body of Jesus. We thank you that our Jesus has been raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We thank you that our prayers come to you not in our own name and in our own power, but they come already with the fragrance and the incense that our Jesus offers himself. We pray that you would hear us that our time of worship would be a delight to you, but also a nourishment to our own souls. Again, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, we'll sing this psalm together. Psalm 80. We'll sing verses 1 through 7. We're going to use the tune, For He Leadeth Me. And what we'll do is... The words to the hymn you have there, we'll sing through one verse and chorus of the hymn to get the tune in, your, in our minds, and then we'll turn to the psalm. With the psalm, we'll sing two verses, then a chorus, or a refrain. Two verses, then a refrain, as, as we see in the psalm. So hopefully that's not confusing. Let's sing together. He leadeth me, O blessed thought, O words with heavenly comfort fraught. Whate'er I do, where'er I be, still tis God's hand that leadeth me. He 
he leadeth me by his own hand he leadeth me his faithful follower i would be for by his hand he leadeth me hear us o king of israel who shepherds joseph very well and like a flock you care for him enthroned between the cherubim shine forth before your people in Manasseh from Benjamin awaken in your righteous might and come to save us in your light restore us God and make your face to shine upon us by your grace. Restore us, God, that we may be forever saved eternally. O Lord, the God of hosts, how long Will you be angry and prolong your wrath against your people's prayers whom you have fed with bread of tears? For you have made us drink our tears and with our neighbors strive with fears. Now all our enemies around mock us with scorn our lives confound. Restore us, God, and make your face to shine upon us by your grace. Restore us, God, that we may be forever saved eternally. Beautiful. You may have a seat. Let's turn together to Isaiah chapter 2. Let's read together. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. 
and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to do to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the upper uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? May God bless the reading of his own word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in these words, you have shown us your worthiness to be worshipped. God, you've shown us the time that these prophets, people of old, looked forward to. They couldn't imagine, imagine it, Lord, when 
you would love and you would reach out to and you would extend grace to heathen nations. They couldn't imagine it. You gave them all the laws, all the ceremonies, all the uh, different ways that they were to be separate and to come apart and to stay away from these pagans. And Lord, when you said that one day these same pagans, these same countries, Lord, the people that we look to for our lineage would turn to you. You would extend grace. Lord, they couldn't imagine it. When we hear your perfect holiness, complete perfection, God, your hatred of sin, Lord, we know in our hearts that we're sinful. We can't imagine you reaching out so, God, we, we worship and we bow and we are humbled. You said all these high things, all these haughty things, all these thoughts of men and inventions of men and idols would be brought low and you would be lifted up. God, I pray that that would happen in our service here today. Lord, I pray that in each person's heart here today that we, are, we would see ourselves as low, as in need of a Savior, and as... You, the only Savior, Heavenly Father. Lord, thank you for your Son, Jesus. Heavenly Father, please anoint Paul. Help him as he preaches. Help us as we hear. I pray that your Spirit will be obeyed. Lord, we want to worship. We want to be encouraged. And we want to put away sin. Lord, please help us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing hymn number 35 together. Again, focusing our attention on this God we worship. sing. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, enlightened, accessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days. Almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Unresting, unhasting, and silent as light, nor wanting, nor wasting, thou rulest in might. Thy justice like mountains, high soaring above. Thy clouds, which are fountains of goodness and love. Great Father of glory, 
Pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All praise we would render, oh, help us to see, tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. Amen. If you will, remain standing and take out your copy of God's Word, if you can and will. And let's turn together to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5, and I do want to read again the whole chapter as we'll be considering it again quite broadly this morning. First Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord." Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the word of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that as we walk our way through it, that you would draw near to us and walk with us that you would be patient with us as we bring our minds to, to try to think on things which are matters only of special revelation, matters that, that require the, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Would you please help us? Lord, don't leave us to ourselves, but give us your power and your strength to understand and apply. I pray that you would help us to appreciate and treasure 
your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. In Ephesians chapter 5, speaking of the supreme love and devotion and affection that the Lord Jesus has for His church, the Apostle Paul says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Several things that we see in that passage which help us to move into a consideration of 1 Corinthians 5. The first thing that we see, obviously, is that Jesus Christ gave Himself up for the church. And that language is a reference to His atoning death, which reveals to us how precious the church is to the Lord Jesus that He would give Himself up, that He would give His life for her life to save her. The church is precious to Christ. We also see that He gave Himself to sanctify the church. That is to set the church apart for Himself as an eternal possession. And, and this again shows how precious the church is to Christ. He says, I will have you for me and exclusively for me Cut off from all others, eyes closed to all others, but me, your mind forever, as an eternal possession. We also see that in sanctifying the church, the Lord washes her. So we're not only purged of the legal guilt of our sin by his death, but we're we're actually in time purged of actual sins throughout our life. He continues to wash us of actual sins with His Word. That's going to be important, but keep that in mind. He continues to wash His church with His Word. What does that teach us? It teaches us that the church is precious to Christ, that He would have her washed of all sins, of, of everything that is destructive and harmful and hurtful to her. He wants it gotten away. He wants all of that gone. And we also see that his goal in all of this is that the church would be ultimately holy and without blemish. Now, as we saw recently in the Song of Solomon, he already says to us through what he has done, there is no uncleanness in you. I, I see no blemish. And we look at ourselves and we say, I see blemishes. Well, there's going to come a day when he says, now look at yourself. And we will be able to say, all of the blemishes are gone. He will actually wash us of every blemish. He will have a spotless bride. Such a perfect groom deserves a spotless bride. All of us have seen couples. Most of us are a part of one of those couples that people see you out in public and they say, what in the world is he doing with her? How, what is she, why is she with him? Uh, we think of that, that, that woman deserves something more than that. Well, this is the flip side of that. This perfect groom deserves a spotless bride, and he will have a spotless bride. She's precious to him. She, the church, we will be, we are now, and will be the apple of his eye for all of eternity. 
We cannot comprehend just how much He loves His church. The church is precious to Jesus Christ. Well, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, we have one of these places in the Word of God that serves to wash the church of her blemishes in the present age. We, we would say all of the Word of God is meant to wash the church, but there are some passages that do so with a little more abrasiveness, a little more of a chemical reaction, that get down uh, through the grime a little quicker, and this is one of those passages that is meant to do that. It's meant to wash the church. It, it serves to help the church in the present age as we prepare for what is going to be the wedding supper of the Lamb, where we will be uh, really, literally, clothed in spotless perfection and ushered in to meet the bridegroom. This, this passage of Scripture does that for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. This passage stands as a reminder to the end of the age that the church broadly and every particular church, we're going to talk about that this evening, the difference between the universal and the local church, but the church broadly, universally, and every particular church or particular society is precious to Christ. Precious, everyone. Now last week we started with a, a general overview, really just trying to get inside the mind of the apostle as he writes to this church and deals with the issues that are happening in this church. A lot of times we approach this passage as as run-of-the-mill Gentile New Testament Christians, and we don't realize Paul's coming into this as a former Pharisee, uh, Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, with all of this history and background, uh, using the Old Testament of God's Word, probably a little bit of the New Testament as well. I, I believe he had at least one of the Gospels. Using this, and he, that's what he's using to teach the church. And if we don't think that way, we're going to misunderstand a lot of what's happening here. We saw first, and this is just a recap, that Paul clearly has in mind a community of people with definable boundaries, rules, and obligations to act together as a whole. In other words, Paul is presupposing the existence of what we call the local church. Even though we never see that phrase in the Bible, the local church, we don't see that anywhere in this passage, he's presupposing it. He is assuming it, as does, I believe, the entire New Testament assumes the existence of a local church. We saw, secondly, that for Paul, the nation of Israel under the Old Covenant served as a type of the New Testament church. Now, when we say type, that doesn't mean a kind. The, the nation of Israel wasn't a kind of the church. What we're saying is it was a, a shadow it pointed forward to the reality which is the New Testament church. Paul gets a lot of his ecclesiology from the laws given to Israel. If you take an extreme antinomian perspective of the Scriptures, that means anti-law. If you take that view that all of the law of God is just gone and is of no use to the New Testament church, well then the New Testament church ceases to exist as the Bible describes it. Because he's presupposing many of Israel's laws. Thirdly, we noted, based on that, following Paul's example, our thinking of the church must be tethered to 
God's dealings with Israel under the Old Covenant, both in continuity and discontinuity. So there are some things that we, as we read from the, from the Old Testament moving into the New Testament, there are some things that are very close to the same, that, that don't really change a whole lot. And we have to keep that in mind. Uh, we, we noted the examples of uh, two or three witnesses to establish a matter. Well, that hasn't changed. That, that just continues. It flows on through. It's applied in the Old Covenant. It's applied to the New Covenant. That continues. And we can say, well, because this is how God dealt with Israel... That helps us to think about how God deals with His church. But there's also discontinuity. There are clean breaks where we say, because God dealt with Israel that way, we know that He doesn't deal with the church that way. They are so separated. Israel, when a child was conceived and brought forth, that child was born into the covenant community, the nation of Israel, because that child was of the offspring of Abraham. Well, we say, well, the church is not like that at all. Therefore, when a child is born, that child is not born into the covenant community. They must be born again into the covenant community. You see, there's continuity, discontinuity. But because we're not dispensationalists, we don't cut the, the first part of our Bible off and throw it in the trash and say, all I need is this. We say, no, all of it is God's revelation. We, we need all of it to influence and teach us how to think about the church. That's what Paul did. And then we saw, fourthly, and this was the main, main thrust of last week as we move in, in, into considering this passage, wherever God establishes a community, whether it be Israel, whether it be Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, whether it be the new heavens and the new earth, wherever God has a community, His chief concern in that community is purity. Purity or holiness. Now, you will, you will often hear people say, God is not concerned about your happiness. He's concerned about your holiness. Well, I would say for a Christian, holiness is our happiness. The reason many of us are not happy is because we're not very holy. Our consciences are not clear. God wants our happiness, therefore He wants our holiness. And He, he pushes us toward holiness because He knows that's what's going to make us the most happy. Heaven is not going to be an unhappy place. It'll be the most holy place and the most happy place. God's chief concern is purity or holiness. And so we see that the main problem in Corinth was not just that there was a sinner among them, but that the church had not done anything about it. The church had not said, you know what? God's chief concern is purity. They had not done that. The man was just there. Our Lord says, you know, the poor you will always have with you. And He could have just as well said sinners you will always have with you. There are always going to be sinners in the church. That's not the startling thing about 1 Corinthians 5, really. There's a sinner in the church. If I said, everybody raise your hand if you're a sinner in the church right now, all of our hands would go up. It's not surprising that there's a sinner in the church. We always have sinners. The question is, what will we as a church do with the sinners that are in the church? Corinth had not dealt with the sinner, the church. And we noted that Paul never in this chapter, never does he address the sinning man. We don't know his name. He never says, you who have committed this thing, you need to do this, this, and this. He never addresses the elders. He said, you elders, if you had been paying attention, this would not have happened. You should have done this and this. No, he says to the church, you ought to have been doing some things and you haven't done them. So while it is the glory of a true church to be able to deal with such sins... 
It is the great downfall, we could say the ruin of a church, when she will not wield the keys of the kingdom of heaven as Christ has commanded. Christ gives the keys to the church and He says, Use these. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And if the church takes those keys and hangs them on a key hanger and says, We're not really going to do that. Christ says, Give me back my keys. I'll give them to somebody else. The church is to use the authority that God has given her. And this is why historically, one of the marks of a true church is discipline. Where there is no discipline, you have no church. So, this morning we're going to move a little closer and we're going to consider this circumstance into which Paul is writing and the way that he instructs the new covenant people of God to handle it. So we're going to move a little closer. I'm going to skip over a lot of details that, Lord willing, we'll come back to in the weeks to come. But this is just going to be a, a skimming of the, of the circumstances under three headings. We see here a particular kind of sin, a particular kind of response, and a particular kind of sinner. Number one, a particular kind of sin. A particular kind of sin. While all sin is wicked, all sin is wicked in the eyes of God, every single sin, no matter how small or how great, every sin, if, if God wanted to judge on the basis of a sin, every single sin is worthy of eternal punishment in hell. Every one. Every, every transgression against the law of God deserves hell. But the Scriptures are clear that not all sins have the same ramifications in this life or in the next. They all deserve hell, but not equally or, or the same ramifications. And we especially see that, that in this life. You'll hear people who will say, based on Christ's words in, in the Sermon on the Mount, whoever looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has already committed adultery, they'll say, to look is the same as adultery. They're the same thing. Well, in a sense, sure, they're both sins against God. But there's another sense in which they're not the same thing. How do we know that? Well, because they don't have the same ramifications from God in the world that we live in or in the world to come. We see that throughout the, the Old Testament and the New Testament in the way that God deals with sins. For example, last week we read some passages where sexual immorality was dealt with under the Old Covenant with the death penalty. Bring her to her father's house, stone her to death with stones. The, the young man who had, had grown up and was rebellious, bring him to his father's house, stone him to death with stones. Those kinds of sins were met with the death penalty. Whereas there were other sins, if you stole a cow, well that wasn't met with the death penalty. You had to give the cow back plus uh, restitution. You had to pay more back. Not all sins received the same punishment or the same ramifications in this life. And there, is, there are levels of punishment in eternity. So we do, and we see that same thing happening in the New Testament. Not every sin is met with the same severity. But in 1 Corinthians 5, we do have one of those sins that is met with the greatest form of severity in the New Testament, just short of Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead where they stand. I believe that was a special instance. I don't think we ought to expect that to happen in the church still. 
although I wouldn't tempt God. But this is one of the most severe repercussions that a sin can receive in, in the New Testament. What makes this sin of 1 Corinthians 5 special? Well, it's a particular kind of sin. First, we see that it was a public sin. A public sin against Christ. Look at verse 1. Paul says, It is actually reported. Now we saw in chapter 1 that a group of people that are called Chloe's people had gone to Paul and were giving him this report of things that were going on in the church. So we can imagine, they said, okay, first of all, people, everybody's divided up into groups. They're all arguing over who their favorite teachers are. Some say they're for you, Paul. Some are for Peter. Some want Apollos to come back. There are some people who said, we don't need teachers. We just believe, we just follow Jesus. And he says, okay, I'll deal with that. What's next? And they say, well, there's a man who has his father's wife. What? This was probably a part of that report. It came to him. The, the, the way that it's written, it is reported, seems to indicate that this was among those things that were reported by Chloe's people. And so we know that this was a public sin. Now that's in contrast with other kinds of sins, like a private sin of the heart that no one would ever know about unless you confess it. There might be some of you here that have you're cherishing a sin or sins against Jesus in your heart. Nobody else knows about it in the world. God knows. But nobody else knows about it unless you go to them and say, here's what I've been struggling with. That's a, that's a different kind of sin. Those kinds of sins can't be dealt with in this way. There are also the kinds of sins that are between two people. One person sins against another person. And those types of sins are to be kept between those two people for as long as possible. This is not that kind of sin. This was a public sin. It's out in the open. The church could see it. The world could see it. It was public. Secondly, this was a disgraceful sin. That is to say that it brought disgrace or shame or dishonor or reproach upon the church from the outside. This was the kind of sin that would stain the reputation of the church. He says, it's of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. What he's saying is, lost people don't even put up with this kind of sin. Unbelievers know this is wrong. The pagans of the Corinthian culture would have been able to see this is a dishonorable thing. Even the marred image of God remaining on the hearts of godless pagans will not allow them with a, with, with, in a good conscience to overlook this kind of sin. I would imagine in, I don't know this for a fact, but in, in we, we always think of those deep dark, the tribes in the deep dark jungle somewhere. Well, I would imagine even in those tribes in the deep dark jungles who are worshiping trees and rocks, they don't even say it's okay for one man to go take another man's wife. And we all just move along like nothing happened. That would usually result in immediate bloodshed. Pagans don't even do this. What was the sin? Well, a man has his father's wife. A man, as we'll see, a church member has married his stepmother. His stepmother. Now, divorce is no secret, especially in our day. You, you start to see the, the pictures on social media. Well, I notice he's not in the pictures anymore. I notice she's got another man in the pictures. 
He's taking all the kids, all the pictures with the kids, but she's not in them. Something must have happened there. Even, even in the ancient world, when there wasn't that, you knew when a man and woman were not living together anymore. Divorce is not private, and neither is marriage. Marriage is no secret. If two people are all of a sudden always together, and maybe they've even had a ceremony, and you see them living together, they've united in that way. That's not a secret to the world. So the fact that this man... Or, or we should say, based on the language here, that this man could have his father's wife tells us his, his father and his stepmother were once married. They've been separated. Everybody would know that. There's also been a, a marriage, probably. This man has now married his stepmother, or at least is, is with her in some way. Well, everybody can see that. And the way that it's phrased, has his father's wife, it indicates his father is still alive. It doesn't say his father's widow, his father's wife, his, his father is still alive. This was a public, disgraceful sin. There, there would have been no way to hide this. This is a particular kind of sin. Now again, we see that it is particular, especially when we contrast it with other scenarios. Let's contrast this public and disgraceful sin with incidents in Scripture that also necessitate action on behalf of the church. But we're going to see here different kinds of sins are treated differently, and this one sort of stands out on its own. You don't have to turn to these. I'll, I'll read them. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he, sins, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, write a letter to the editor of the newspaper so that the whole town will know what has happened. No, that's not what it says. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. He's removed from the church. Now here we have a sin between brothers, and there's this three-step process with ever-broadening concentric circles. The circles get bigger and bigger, starting with two people moving to the church. And in this scenario, the sin itself remains unknown to all but three people until it's brought to the church, and even then, only the church is made aware. Only the church. Why? Why would Christ establish that in His churches? Because the church is precious to Christ. Not, not, not a husband in here would be right to say, I love it when my wife's name is smeared across the, the county or in the town. No, He does whatever He can to cover her blemishes and to make sure that everybody, even if she's not, make sure everybody believes she is the most glorious, the most precious woman in the world. That's how Christ is with His church. The reputation of the church is maintained before the eyes of the world as the church proves that it can handle its own business. Nobody even knows about it. The church doesn't air out its laundry before the unbelieving world. That's not what Christians do. So our Lord's instructions here require that this kind of sin be kept private. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now here, if you pay attention to the language, the issue is 
that of a disorderly or undisciplined life. Now just think about that for a second. Did you know that an undisciplined life is worthy of church discipline? Did you know that? Disorderliness? Undisciplined? It's a matter of the fourth commandment. God has said, work six days and rest one day. If you can't get all your work done in six days, it's not because God didn't give you enough time. It's because you were not ordered enough in those six days. You're living disorderly. And it's our job to figure out how to order our time to get our things done. And if there's not order, if there's disorder, if there's a lack of discipline, that eventually it, it, it is seen by others, and that's what's happening here. So what does he say? Well, separate him from normal, friendly fellowship. Have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed, but notice what he says. Don't regard him as an enemy. Warn him as a brother. In other words, treat him as a Christian by warning him. If this is an unbeliever out in the world, undisciplined, and you have contact, you might say a thing or two, but really you're thinking, well, they're, they're acting like a lost person. But, but a Christian, undisciplined, well, the way that I treat him as a brother is by warning him, hey, hey, you've got to get on the ball here. What time do you get up? I don't know. What are you going to do this week? Well, I don't know. What do you got planned this weekend? Well, I don't know. Brother, that's not the way to keep God's commandments. As a brother, warn him as a brother. But still, the sin here is only known by the church. It's not broadcast. It's not bringing outside reproach. Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. Avoid them. So those who cause divisions and teach false doctrine, they're to be avoided. Titus 3.10, as for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. So those who cause divisions, they get two warnings and then have nothing to do with them. These are probably dealing with outsiders, those who are not yet members of the church. And I think based on the fact that this was written to Titus, we would take this as a, a part of, of pastoral concern that when there are those causing division, it is the job of the elders to go to them and say, stop, that's your first warning. Stop, that's your second warning. Okay, you can't come here anymore. That's, that's our job. But still, who knows about this? It's, it's the church. It's dealt with within the church. But what we see in 1 Corinthians 5 is a public and disgraceful sin that is indicative of a person's whole lifestyle. It's not private. People know it. It's not a minor thing. It's not just an irresponsible habit. Nobody says, whoops, I married my stepmom. I, I promise it won't happen again. This is not just, just a mistake. It's not a slip up. It's not a matter of personal opinion. Paul doesn't say, in my opinion, I don't think it's best that a man should marry his stepmom, but really, that's what he wants to do, he can. No, this is not a matter of opinion. This is an open, consistent settled lifestyle of sin. This particular kind of sin, public and disgraceful sin, brings reproach upon the sinner himself. This brings reproach upon the church. It brings reproach upon the gospel. Because this man is certainly a professing Christian. As we'll see, he's in the church. He claims to have been born again of God's Spirit. When sins like this are 
left unaddressed in the company of the saints. It proclaims to everyone who sees or hears about it that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not powerful enough to release a person from bondage to sin and make them slaves of righteousness. It says that gospel has no power. Those, those Christians, they're always talking about this soul-transforming, life-transforming power. These Christians claim to have wisdom from heaven that answers the problems, the, the deepest problems of man. But when I look among them, it looks like they have the same problems we do. They're the same as we are. They're in amongst them. Or some just like us. And then they'll say, that message, that gospel, that's baloney. They're the same as we are. Nothing has changed. It brings reproach upon the gospel. It brings reproach upon Christ. It proclaims to a lost and dying world that we've got a Christ that can get us out of hell, but He can't get us out of a sin. Just, just cling to Him. He'll get you out of hell. Well, can He separate you? Can He, can he free you from the, the power of sin now? No, He can't do that. I, I have to live and wallow in my sins. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Christ sets His people free. It brings reproach upon Him. So we're dealing in 1 Corinthians 5 with a particular kind of sin, one that is public and one that is disgraceful. Secondly, we see that this sin requires a particular kind of response. Particular kinds of sins necessitate a particular kind of response by the church body. Now, before we look at the right response, notice the Corinthians' wrong response. Verse 2, it says, he says to them, And you are arrogant. That's not good. That's bad. In verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. That's how they had responded. That's how they were living. The Corinthian church had many great boasts about their gifts about their favorite teachers, their so-called super apostles, all of these wonderful liberties that they had in Christ that they were using and abusing. As a church, they were arrogant and boastful. All the while, they had public, disgraceful sin in their midst, and they just let it go. And some have argued that maybe this was a part of their boasts. Come to our church. Hey, we'll let you live however you want to. You can just... Keep, keep your living, keep whatever. We won't push the envelope. We won't, get, we won't meddle in your business. You just live however you want to. We're, we're the church that takes everybody. It does not matter what a church might boast. If sin is tolerated and left unaddressed, that church is without the power of God. It doesn't matter. We, you can say, we can say, well, we've got this many people. We've got this many programs. We've, we've sent out this many men. We're, we're doing this and we're doing that and our budget is this and that. But if there's no discipline, if sin is not addressed, God's power is not there. All of those things I just named, men can do that in their own power. We can drum up numbers. We can drum up budgets. We can drum up programs. But we cannot in our own power mortify a single sin. We cannot deal with a single sin. Not one of us can deal with a single sin in our own power. So when sin is not being dealt with, you're proving God is not among us. Because when God establishes a community, His chief concern is purity. The glory of a true church is its discipline. And so a church with no discipline is a place from which the glory has departed. When there's no discipline. Well, my mama goes there. doesn't matter. 
Yeah, but well, my family goes there. Doesn't matter. Well, my, my cousin, he, he says they're doing great things. No discipline, no glory, no church. It doesn't matter. We've got to get that through our minds. God doesn't see things the way we see things. God says, when I establish a community, my chief concern is purity. Their response was wrong. But then we see the, what ought to have been their response in verses 2 through 8. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So he says to them, here's what ought to be their response. First, ought you not rather to mourn? That is to grieve or to be sad. This is a rhetorical question. He's, he's asserting, here's what you should have done. You should have been sad. You should have been mourning. You should have grieved. Your hearts should be broken. There should not be no, any boasting, arrogance. There should be sadness and tears. And then he says, let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. Paul commands the church as a body to remove this man from their fellowship. The church is to mourn. The church is to remove the sinner and thus cleanse the church. So we have a particular kind of sin. We have a particular kind of response. And thirdly, we see all of this is necessary because we're dealing with a particular kind of sinner. A particular kind of sinner. Now we know all men are sinners. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Right? If any man says he has no sin, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Most of us would say, yeah, all men are sinners. We're all sinners. But all sinners do not necessitate this particular action. We, we don't do this every time we get together just based on the fact that we're all sinners. This man is a particular kind of sinner. The church is not called to this action to all known, public, disgraceful sinners. Na name your, your celebrity sinner. We don't have meetings and say, I, I move that we remove so-and-so from our fellowship. We don't do that. But why? What makes this man a particular kind of sinner? Well, it's just that. He's in the fellowship. He's in the church. This man is a professor. He professes to be a Christian, first of all. And that's what distinguishes this scene from many others that we might see in the world or even that might be within our reach in uh, the church. This man is a professor. He bears the name of brother, verse 11. I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. This man takes upon himself the title brother in Christ. He says, I'm your brother. Which means he's also saying, I'm a child of God. 
I've been adopted into God's family. I am a son of God. I am a co-heir with Christ. I have been regenerated by the spirit of adoption. I am a Christian. This man says that. I'm a Christian. This man says, I'm one of you in the church. I'm one of you. That gospel you believe, I believe it too. That God that you worship, I worship Him too. That blood that you claim washes your sins, I claim the same blood washes me of my sins. I'm a Christian. That's this man. He bears the name. He carries the name of Christ. Listen, it is a serious thing to say, I'm a Christian. That's serious. If you say, I'm a Christian, but you're not a Christian, that's breaking the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It's a serious thing. That's what this man has done. He's bearing the name of brother. We also see that he's inside this church. Verse 12, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? In reference to dealing with this kind of sinner. You deal with those, this kind of sinner, this professor, this one who names or bears the name of brother who's inside the church. Verse 13, purge the evil person from among you. Just as we saw in verse 1, there's sexual immorality among you. That is, in you all, in the midst of the, the assembly, amongst those who are in. We saw last week Paul is presupposing a community where there is a definable boundary. There's a group of people. We know who's in, we know who's out. This man professes to be a Christian, but he's also in this church. He's a member of the church. He goes to church. And does church things with church people. He says, hey, good morning, how are you? Did you have a good week? Yeah, how about you? Oh, it was wonderful. He's one of those guys. He's one of them. He was a friend to them. He was well known to them. When they described him to their outside friends, they would say, we got a, a, a brother in the church, a fellow church member who does this or that. He was one of them. He was right there in the middle of them all. Now, if an unregenerate pagan acts like an unregenerate pagan, that's bad. That's bad. But it's not a contradiction in terms. The unregenerate pagan who acts like an unregenerate pagan is not denying the truth. He's actually affirming the truth. He's showing what a person without God acts like. He's showing he has no hope. He has nothing in this world. He's grasping at everything he can and his sin is coming out of his fingertips everywhere he goes. He's confirming the truth with his actions. He's not denying the truth. But here we have a person who professes to have been born again. He's joined himself to a local church. He's waving the banner of Christ. But at the same time, he's living a life of public disgraceful sin. That is a contradiction in terms. That's a denial of the truth. That's saying, this is true, but also, this is true. See, that's, that's a problem. I, I would say this aggravates the sin. That's why it's so serious to bear the name of brother. And that's what brings this problem under the jurisdiction of the local church, this local church. Paul doesn't write to Rome and say, y'all need to send somebody over there to deal with Corinth. He doesn't, he doesn't write to Galatia and say, come deal with Corinth. He says, you, church in Corinth, this matter is under your jurisdiction. You see in the old movies where somebody would commit a crime and what they do, they make a beeline for the border. If I can just get to Mexico, they can't get me there because I'm out of their jurisdiction. Here, what he's saying is, this man's in your jurisdiction. This is right under your nose in the church. 
And it requires action on behalf of the church. And that, well, that's what Paul's dealing with here. The church needs to take action. Cannot, you, can't, you can't not proceed. You must act. So we see a particular kind of sin requiring a particular kind of response from the church because it was being committed by a particular kind of sinner, one of their own. This was an open, disgraceful sin. It requires open, formal, judicial action by the church because the church has been given the power to act in such cases for itself on behalf of of everyone in its ranks. The the church has been given the authority to act as a court, to set up a courtroom. This is, we're going to talk about this. This doesn't happen very much anymore. To set up the stage like a courtroom. Here's the offender. Here are the charges. Does anybody have anything to say? Would anybody like to approach the bench? However you want to think of a courtroom, the church has the authority to say something has happened under our jurisdiction and we must act. And every church member is a part of the jury, has to sit, to listen, to inquire, and to make a decision. That's what Paul's dealing with here. Now, for application, when you hear this, this should do some things in your heart. Uh, Many things, but I just want to give you three. The first one is that this should cause us to recognize the seriousness of being in the church. It's serious. To be a church member, to be, quote, in, it's not a light matter. It's a serious thing. To be counted amongst the visible people of God is a serious thing. It requires duties between one another. You are expected, because you made the vow, to watch over the souls of the other members. And the other members are expected to be watching over your soul. Your public actions bring honor or reproach to an entire body of people. Now, that's strange to us. We think nobody in our society thinks that way anymore. Well, they should. The church has lost all credibility, all respect in in society. That's why they don't think this way. Because we've made a joke of it. We say, well, it doesn't matter. Just come as you are. But, you know, all of that stuff. We've lost we, we, we've, we should, I should say, we, we have thrown that respect away. And that's why we say, nobody thinks that way. If anybody should think this way, it ought to be the Christians reading a Bible. Your public actions bring reproach upon an entire body of people. The world will associate you with that group of people and that group with you. Again, we say, well, the world doesn't think that way. Church people think that this way. Church people, we know this. This is how they think. Oh, oh, they're a part of that church. Okay. I, say no more if they're a part of that church. Oh, they, they, they left that church? Well, yeah, they, they should leave that church. Say no more. You, you said all you need. They make those associations. The world might not, but very often churches do. Being a part of the church is a serious thing. God watches you in His church, either as one of His own with special care or... As an imposter, God watches. He notes every single action as a sin against the blood of His Son. You've joined yourself to my people, but you're a fake. I'm noting every single one. I'm putting their tears in my bottle. I'm I'm piling up your sins for the day of judgment. So I hope you realize how serious it is to be in the church. But also, this should cause us 
to recognize the safety of being in the church. We've got help to watch over our souls, to check our blind spots. We've got people who have said, yes, I will help you watch over your soul and you help me watch over my soul. We'll take care of each other. You don't have to go by yourself. I'll be with you. And and I don't want to go by myself. You come help me. And God has orchestrated that for the safety and the advancement in our sanctification, our growth. We have brothers and sisters who have agreed to keep us accountable. We We have vowed before God, I will help them to be accountable. And if we begin to drift, well, there there ought to be concern. We shouldn't be surprised if somebody says, hey, I'm concerned about what I'm seeing. No, our our knee-jerk reaction is, well, who do you think you are to be concerned with what you think you're seeing? Rather than God has given a person who would watch over my soul even closer than I've been watching, their concern for my soul, if we get spiritually lazy... We should expect that we have brothers and sisters who will notice that and that will come alongside of us and spur us along. There's safety in the church. We walk in the close circle of God's special means of grace where we can grow. We're walking with the flock of God by which God Himself keeps a close watch upon us. God actually says, here's what I want to do. I want to set some men apart. Their, their, their job, their sole job is just going to... Watch over a group of people. Just oversee this group, care for their souls. It's their safety in the church. I hope you realize the safety of being in the church. But this should also cause us to recognize again the preciousness of the church to Christ. The preciousness of the church to Christ. He will not endure sin. We see this in 1 Corinthians 5. Christ is not going to endure sin in His church. It hurts His church. It harms His people. He says, I don't want want my people harmed. I don't want my church defiled. Get it out. Just as, as much as we would say He would go after that one lost sheep, at the same time He will not endure one ravenous wolf. The sheep are brought back. The wolves are shot. He's given the church His own words to ensure that she's cared for. You say, man, that's, this is a lot, of, a lot of work caring for the church. Well, Christ says, here, I'll give you my word. Word for word, detailed instructions on how to do it, right here in His word. He's given His church the authority to make judicial decisions, the Spirit of God dwelling in our midst. We can make decisions about this sort of thing using the word of God. And Christ promises to gather with the church when these kinds of things need to be done. He doesn't say, well, you need to get rid of the sin, good luck. Let me know when you're finished. Christ doesn't have to say, as the Apostle Paul said, though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. He can say, I'm, I'm with you in your midst. In all that you do, I'm not absent at all. I'm with you. The church is precious to Christ. He doesn't leave us to do all of these things by ourselves. Now, there are... Many here who are not yet members of this church. And maybe there are some here who would say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Christ. My my faith is in Jesus. I'm washed in His blood. I'm striving daily to, 
to turn away from my sin and trust in Him more and more. I'm a Christian, but I'm not a church member. Well, I want you to know, if that's you, that the other church members here, those who are church members, we want you to be church members. And I, I, I can say on behalf of Christ Himself, that's the one for whom I speak this morning, Christ wants you to be a church member. He wants that. It's a serious thing. That's why we have a process for joining. The church has to use those keys and open the door, and sometimes we have to really jiggle them and get them in there just right. There's a process, but it's a safe and delightful thing, and that's why we talk about it often. It's a good thing to be a church member. And I want to speak specifically to the younger children. The younger children, because we have a process in our church, and your parents may have told you, because of the process, you say, I'm not old enough to be a church member yet. And you probably think that's all I ever hear. Well, I'm not old enough. You're not old enough. You're not big enough. When will I ever be old enough or big enough to do anything that the adults are doing? Well, listen. While you're young, God has given you parents to help you, to keep helping you along until you're old enough. Let your parents take care of you. Trust them. Trust what God has put there. You also have to understand that your parents are going to be much more helpful to you than a pastor or the elders can be right now. They can be with you a lot more and they can deal with you more closely than we can right now. So just trust your parents to oversee that while you're young. But if that's you, you're a young child, but you can still say, I'm a Christian, I'm following Christ. As best as I know how, if that's you, listen. It's a wonderful thing to be numbered amongst the people of God. It's, it, it is a wonderful thing to be a church member. But as wonderful as that is, you also need to remember that if you belong to the Lord, if your faith is in Jesus, you're already His. And there's a sense in which he says, you're already sort of a part of my church. You would say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a member of this church. I, I'm not a member of a, of a church on earth. Jesus says, no, you're a member of my church in heaven. If you're a real Christian, you're already a member of His church in heaven. You're already His and His forever. Don't get discouraged I know when you're a child, you might think, oh, time goes by so slowly. When will I ever be old enough to become a, a church member? It's taken forever. I'm going to die before I get to be a church member. Jesus is going to come back before I get to be a church member. Everything is just creeping along so slowly. Well, listen, again, if your faith is in Jesus and you die before you're old enough to be a church member, children die all the time, you know. If you die before you're old enough, or Christ returns before you're old enough to become a church member on earth, it's really just kind of like you got to skip the long line at the amusement park and go straight to the front and ride the ride without dealing with all the, the hard stuff of being a church member on earth. You get to go straight to being a member of the church in heaven. And when you get there, when you see Christ, 
If you die or Christ returns before you're old enough to be a church member and you say, you, you, you see Christ, He's not going to say, now you should have been a church member. He's not going to say that. He's going to say, welcome home, my little brother, my little sister. Welcome to the church in heaven. So be encouraged. I, I hope that you see that it's a great blessing to be a church member, but I also don't want anyone to become discouraged about the processes. Christ has given to the church the processes. We have to trust the processes. Don't become discouraged. As much as, as we who are older, we rejoice that we can be called members of Christ's church. That's a good thing. That's not our, our chief rejoicing. Our, our, our chief rejoicing, as Christ said, is that our names are written in heaven. That's the most important thing, more important than all of them. Church membership does not decide whether a person goes to heaven or hell. That's your faith in Christ. It's good. It's not the ultimate thing. So keep that in mind. Let's pray together.